Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Seven o'clock this evening, Eastern Time, air and naval forces of the United States launched a series of strikes against the headquarters, terrorist facilities, and military assets that support Muammar Gaddafi's subversive activities. The attacks were concentrated and carefully targeted to minimize casualties among the Libyan people with whom we have no quarrel. From initial reports, our forces have succeeded in their mission. Several weeks ago in New Orleans, I warned Colonel Gaddafi we would hold his regime accountable for any new terrorist attacks launched against American citizens. More recently, I made it clear we would respond as soon as we determined conclusively who was responsible for such attacks. On April 5th, in West Berlin, a terrorist bomb exploded in a nightclub frequented by American servicemen. Sergeant Kenneth Ford and a young Turkish woman were killed and 230 others were wounded, among them some 50 American military personnel. This monstrous brutality is but the latest act in Colonel Gaddafi's reign of terror. The evidence is now conclusive that the terrorist bombing of La Belle Discotheque was planned and executed under the direct orders of the Libyan regime. On March 25th, more than a week before the attack, Orders were sent from Tripoli to the Libyan People's Bureau in East Berlin to conduct a terrorist attack against Americans to cause maximum and indiscriminate casualties. Libya's agents then planted the bomb. On April 4th, the People's Bureau alerted Tripoli that the attack would be carried out the following morning. The next day, they reported back to Tripoli on the great success of their mission. Our evidence is direct, it is precise, it is irrefutable. We have solid evidence about other attacks Gaddafi has planned against the United States installations and diplomats and even American tourists. Thanks to close cooperation with our friends, some of these have been prevented. With the help of French authorities, 
We recently aborted one such attack, a planned massacre using grenades and small arms of civilians waiting in line for visas at an American embassy. Colonel Gaddafi is not only an enemy of the United States. His record of subversion and aggression against the neighboring states in Africa is well documented and well known. He has ordered the murder of fellow Libyans in countless countries. He has sanctioned acts of terror in Africa, Europe, and the Middle East, as well as the Western Hemisphere. Today, we have done what we had to do. If necessary, we shall do it again. It gives me no pleasure to say that, and I wish it were otherwise. Before Gaddafi seized power in 1969, the people of Libya had been friends of the United States. And I'm sure that today most Libyans are ashamed and disgusted that this man has made their country a synonym for barbarism around the world. The Libyan people are a decent people, caught in the grip of a tyrant. To our friends and allies in Europe who cooperated in today's mission, I would only say, you have the permanent gratitude of the American people. Europeans who remember history understand better than most that there is no security, no safety in the appeasement of evil. It must be the core of Western policy that there be no sanctuary for terror. And to sustain such a policy, free men and free nations must unite and work together. Sometimes it is said that by imposing sanctions against Colonel Gaddafi or by striking at his terrorist installations, we only magnify the man's importance. But the proper way to deal with him is to ignore him. I do not agree. Long before I came into this office, Colonel Gaddafi had engaged in acts of international terror, acts that put him outside the company of civilized men. For years, however, he suffered no economic or political or military sanction, and the atrocities mounted in number, as did the innocent dead and wounded. And for us to ignore, by inaction, the slaughter of American civilians and American soldiers, whether in nightclubs or airline terminals, is simply not in the American tradition. When our citizens are abused or attacked anywhere in the world on the direct orders of a hostile regime, we will respond so long as I'm in this Oval Office. Self-defense is not only our right, it is our duty. It is the purpose behind the mission undertaken tonight, a mission fully consistent with Article 51 of the United Nations Charter. We believe that this preemptive action against his terrorist installations will not only diminish Colonel Gaddafi's capacity to export terror, it will provide him with incentives and reasons to alter his criminal behavior. I have no illusion that tonight's action will ring down the curtain on Gaddafi's reign of terror. But this mission, violent though it was, can bring closer a safer and more secure world for decent men and women. We will persevere. Good afternoon, everybody. I want to take this. Good afternoon, everybody. I want to take this opportunity to update the American people about the situation in Libya. Over the last several weeks, the world has watched events unfold in Libya with hope and alarm. Last month, protesters took to the streets across the country to demand their universal rights and a government that is accountable to them and responsive to their aspirations. But they were met with an iron fist. Within days, 
Whole parts of the country declared their independence from a brutal regime, and members of the government serving in Libya and abroad chose to align themselves with the forces of change. Muammar Gaddafi clearly lost the confidence of his own people and the legitimacy to lead. Instead of respecting the rights of his own people, Gaddafi chose the path of brutal suppression. Innocent civilians were beaten, imprisoned, and in some cases killed. Peaceful protests were forcefully put down. Hospitals were attacked, and patients disappeared. A campaign of intimidation and repression began. In the face of this injustice, the United States and the international community moved swiftly. Sanctions were put in place by the United States and our allies and partners. The UN Security Council imposed further sanctions, an arms embargo, and the specter of international accountability for Gaddafi and those around him. Humanitarian assistance was positioned on Libya's borders, and those displaced by the violence received our help. Ample warning was given that Gaddafi needed to stop his campaign of repression or be held accountable. The Arab League and the European Union joined us in calling for an end to violence. Once again, Gaddafi chose to ignore the will of his people and the international community. Instead, he launched a military campaign against his own people. And there should be no doubt about his intentions, because he himself has made them clear. For decades, he's demonstrated a willingness to use brute force through his sponsorship of terrorism against the American people, as well as others, and through the killings that he has carried out within his own borders. And just yesterday, speaking of the city of Benghazi, a city of roughly 700,000 people, he threatened, and I quote, we will have no mercy and no pity. No mercy on his own citizens. Now here's why this matters to us. Left unchecked, we have every reason to believe that Gaddafi would commit atrocities against his people. Many thousands could die. A humanitarian crisis would ensue. The entire region could be destabilized, endangering many of our allies and partners. The calls of the Libyan people for help would go unanswered. The democratic values that we stand for would be overrun. Moreover, the words of the international community would be rendered hollow. And that's why the United States has worked with our allies and partners to shape a strong international response at the United Nations. Our focus has been clear, protecting innocent civilians within Libya and holding the Gaddafi regime accountable. Yesterday, in response to a call for action by the Libyan people and the Arab League, the UN Security Council passed a strong resolution that demands an end to the violence against citizens. It authorizes the use of force with an explicit commitment to pursue all necessary measures to stop the killing, to include the enforcement of a no-fly zone over Libya. It also strengthens our sanctions and the enforcement of an arms embargo against the Gaddafi regime. Now, once more, Muammar Gaddafi has a choice. The resolution that passed lays out very clear conditions 
that must be met. The United States, the United Kingdom, France, and Arab states agree that a ceasefire must be implemented immediately. That means all attacks against civilians must stop. Gaddafi must stop his troops from advancing on Benghazi, pull them back from Ajubia, Misrata, and Zawiya, and establish water, electricity, and gas supplies to all areas. Humanitarian assistance must be allowed to reach the people of Libya. Let me be clear. These terms are not negotiable. These terms are not subject to negotiation. If Gaddafi does not comply with the resolution, the international community will impose consequences, and the resolution will be enforced through military action. In this effort, the United States is prepared to act as part of an international coalition. American leadership is essential, but that does not mean acting alone. It means shaping the conditions for the international community to act together. That's why I've directed Secretary Gates and our military to coordinate their planning, and tomorrow Secretary Clinton will travel to Paris for a meeting with our European allies and Arab partners about the enforcement of Resolution 1973. We will provide the unique capabilities that we can bring to bear to stop the violence against civilians, including enabling our European allies and Arab partners to effectively enforce a no-fly zone. I have no doubt that the men and women of our military are capable of carrying out this mission. Once more, they have the thanks of a grateful nation and the admiration of the world. I also want to be clear about what we will not be doing. The United States is not going to deploy ground troops into Libya. And we are not going to use force to go beyond a well-defined goal, specifically the protection of civilians in Libya. In the coming weeks, we will continue to help the Libyan people with humanitarian and economic assistance so that they can fulfill their aspirations peacefully. Now, the United States did not seek this outcome. Our decisions have been driven by Gaddafi's refusal to respect the rights of his people and the potential for mass murder of innocent civilians. It is not an action that we will pursue alone. Indeed, our British and French allies and members of the Arab League have already committed to take a leadership role in the enforcement of this resolution, just as they were instrumental in pursuing it. We are coordinating closely with them. And this is precisely how the international community should work, as more nations bear both the responsibility and the cost of enforcing international law. This is just one more chapter in the change that is unfolding across the Middle East and North Africa. From the beginning of these protests, we've made it clear that we are opposed to violence. We've made clear our support for a set of universal values and our support for the political and economic change that the people of the region deserve. But I want to be clear. The change in the region will not and cannot be imposed by the United States or any foreign power. Ultimately, it will be driven by the people of the Arab world. It is their right and their responsibility to determine their own destiny. Let me close by saying that there is no decision I face as 
your Commander-in-Chief that I consider as carefully as the decision to ask our men and women to use military force, particularly at a time when our military is fighting in Afghanistan and winding down our activities in Iraq. That decision uh, is only made more difficult. But the United States of America will not stand idly by in the face of actions that undermine global peace and security. So I've taken this decision with the confidence that action is necessary and that we will not be acting alone. Our goal is focused, our cause is just, and our coalition is strong. Thank you very much. Africa's future is up to Africans. The people of Africa are ready to claim that future. And in my country, African Americans, including so many recent immigrants, thrived in every sector of society, done so despite a difficult past. And we've drawn strength from our African heritage. With institutions and a strong will, I know that Africans can live their dreams in Nairobi, and Lagos, Kigali, in Sasha, Harare, and right here in Accra. What's going on, people? Hope everything's well out there. Yes, you're in the right show, the right place, the right time, and the right time is today, and the right time is now. Sorry, you can't see the bingo has returned live and direct on the air. I know I've been gone for a while. I've gotten a lot of emails and a lot of text messages. If you haven't done a show, no, what's happened? Did they shut you down? Like, no, they didn't shut me down. They're dealing with a lot of health issues, actually. That has been the situation over the last couple of weeks, and those that know me know how really serious it has been. But you know I was going to come back eventually. For those thinking that they actually tuned into a, a historical segment of our show, the first, first voice you heard was 1986, President Ronald Reagan declaring a bombing raid, bombing mission, military action against Libya. And here we are years later, 25 years later, if my math is good, President Obama making the same statement in reference to uh, the just and the true mission with the international partners of the Arab League and the European Union and NATO in reference to addressing the Libyan situation. And furthermore, we had to go to when uh, President Obama was down there and uh, gone on the west side, hanging out in Accra. He made a speech that African problems will only be solved by African solutions. I was a little concerned when I heard other countries, and he came to Kigali, I'm like, uh, where's Congo? And of course, he had his fly Kinshasa in there, so I had to give the love, had to give the love. So now, if it's, a, if it's an African problem, requires an African solution, and I think he said, by Africans, then the question is, in none of these speeches I've heard so far, have I heard the African Union mentioned in this cause in any kind of way? When I hear about international partners, it's about the Europeans, it's about essentially NATO, and NATO seems to be running supreme on this show. So the question is, the show being Libya, not my show. So the question is, where is the African Union in this whole thing? What's going on? What is the word on all these people that the African Union, who have a self, who have a cooperative defense clause, that if one is attacked, all will come to the defense? Where are they? Why have they been pushed to the side like a bunch of refugees trying to get out of Malawi? So we have to address that today, people. So let's take our first commercial break. Since I haven't talked to you guys in, in a long while, you know. Um, what can I give you guys? Let's give a little 
slow it down a little bit here. Burning of the past. Since we started the past in 1986, let's go to the past. ride back to our groove. The African Union, again, it's a collection of the countries on the continent of Africa, and for some reason, they've been very silent, and it seems like in all the press I've seen, whether it be TV, radio, or what have you, on the blogs, I've never heard the African Union in reference, oh, I'm sorry, in regards to being a partnership in this whole military campaign against Libya. And again, we have to call it for what it is, Libya, uh, it's a military campaign, no-fly zone. But there was an interview some time ago where Jendaya Frazier, she's a fellow at the Council of Foreign Relations, actually sat down with the chairman of the African Union, Jean Ping. So let's see what they had to say. Maybe she addressed the situation as to, it's almost like a TV series. It was that TV show that came out a little while ago, uh, Where is Common Miranda? In this episode, we should call it Where is the African Union? Don't get me started. Let's go. I'm Jendaya Fraser. Adjunct Senior Fellow for African Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations, and I'm here this afternoon with His Excellency Dr. Yan Ping, Chairperson of the African Union Commission. Welcome. Thank you. We've all been riveted by what's taken place 
in Tunisia and in Egypt? How do the events in North Africa impact the rest of Africa? How do you see that? Well, first of all, everybody was surprised that these events came suddenly from the people, from the street. Mm -hmm. It was not pushed by somebody else. The events in Tunisia happened so quickly that in a month the leader was, uh, the president was obliged to, to leave the country. And it is a revolution, peaceful revolution. So we welcome it, we accompany it, and we think that now the problem is we should go after the transition to a normal democratization of the country. And Egypt was the same thing, similar, not exactly the same thing, but similar. Events in Libya was a little bit different because it started similar with peaceful movement and then, you know, the violence occurred against the civilians and, uh, of course, we have condemned the violence against the civilians. Then we have noticed that quickly it become something close to a civil war with uh, two armed forces fighting each other and with the risk of partition of the country and the risk of Somalization of the country. That's why immediately we took the decision, our Peace and Security Council. It was decided by our, our member state on the highest level, a roadmap with ceasefire. Secondly, with the humanitarian assistance. We should let the humanitarian assistance do their job freely in the old territory. Three, to protect the foreign nationals, including the African nationals who are there working peacefully. And uh, everybody has helped these nationals to transport them out of the country and to help inside of this country the reinsertion. You can imagine in a country like uh, Chad mm. to have uh, half a million of people back there. It is a problem. Then the, th the fourth part, which is very important, was to make the necessary reform to eliminate the causes of that conflict and to promote and uh, help the legitimate aspiration of the Libyan people to democracy, to human rights, to justice, to peace and development. This is very important because it implies many things. With these external interventions, as we saw with NATO in Libya, we see with the um, French and the UN in Cote d'Ivoire, and even ICC activism in the region about African institutions. I think about the role of the Peace and Security Council on the dip diplomatic side. What about African standby brigades to be able to protect civilians or African regional courts to deal with the issues of justice? How do you, as a chairperson, work on building those institutions and what state are they in today? You know, the standby force is almost operational today with the five brigades, one from uh, uh, each region. Mm -hmm. We are also on the field. 
as you know, mm -hmm. in Somalia, yes. we are there. So it is uh, uh, the architecture concerning peace and security is in place, is I think uh, one of the most uh, complete uh, structure in the world in regional organization. Because mm -hmm with this time by force, this early warning system. And what about the justice side? Um, ICC is all over Kenya, they're in Sudan, um, they may go to, they're in Congo, they may go to Cote d'Ivoire now, they're talking about Libya. Is there no intermediary, uh, some type of African court that could be brought into play here? Yes, you know, because of the problem which we've mentioned in the past, the double standard of uh, ICC, we have decided to create our own court of justice. We have submitted to our member state to complete the judiciary with the criminal court mm -hmm. in order to judge ourselves, our criminals, which is done today without any problems by the, the International Tribunal for Rwanda, who has been working there mm -hmm. in Africa, the International Tribunal of, on, uh, on Sierra Leone, which is working there without mm -hmm. any problem. Right. So, you know, this should work with this problem of subsidiarity. If a country can judge himself, itself, it's, it's perfect. Mm -hmm. If it can't, we should move to regional organization before going elsewhere. Yes. Well, Dr. Ping, thank you very much. Thank it's you. been a pleasure. Thank you. All right, all right. I have to go on a side note here. You know, I like to be fair and balanced, but I, I want to make sure... I heard this correctly, that the issue of the double standard when it came to the ICC, obviously this interview was done before they arrested uh, the Serbian warlord uh, several days ago. So that clarified that issue of the ICC. Yet, though, conversely, how can uh, the word, and again, I'm not attacking the AU. I think if you all heard some of my prior shows, you know how I feel about them anyways, since they came out of the OAS. Was the OAS? Yeah, Organization of African States, or whatever they were called. But if there's an international arrest warrant on the president of Sudan, Bashir, and the AU gets together and says, we're not going to honor that international arrest warrant, then how could you stand there and say the ICC has a double standard and we should solve our own problems? If there's a double standard, it's the fact that two babies guys are trying to be like NATO and the EU and the West, and it's trying to act like they're not African because, you, as you know, when it comes to politics, the, the intellectuals, and you know when you're an intellectual when you hear one, the intellectuals say one thing when they're down there with the people in the home country, but when they're with the West, well, that's a little different. And I think maybe that interview clarified a few things as to why the AU isn't really being as uh, forceful as it could be in the situation. Because let's hear what the chairperson had to say when he met with Secretary Clinton a little while back. Good afternoon. It's a real pleasure for me to welcome Chairperson Ping of the African Union here to the State Department. Uh, Chairperson Ping and his delegation have been engaged in uh, a consultation uh, with uh, members of uh, our team here in Washington across our government. And we're especially pleased about that because uh, Africa is a matter of great uh, significance to the Obama administration. Uh, and we have uh, every intention to broaden and deepen our relationship, not only bilaterally with countries, but also with the African Union. 
I want to thank the chairperson for his personal commitment and leadership on behalf of the imperative of uh, democratic uh, transformation and uh, establishment within the countries of Africa, uh, his commitment to accountability and transparency and good governance. Uh, we wish to work with the AU in order to provide support for the programs that uh, uh, he has championed. Uh, in addition, we uh, seek the African Union's uh, assistance in arriving at a political solution in Libya. Um, UN Security Council Resolution 1973 uh, expressed the international uh, community's concern about the actions of the Libyan uh, government under Colonel Gaddafi. Uh, three African nations that are members of the Security Council uh, voted for the resolution. And I appreciate what the African Union has said, urging that there be a democratic uh, process that can be inclusive and supportive of the needs of the Libyan people. And I look forward to meeting uh, with you now and discussing uh, steps that we can take together. So again, uh, we welcome you to the, uh, Washington and the State Department. Thank you, Madam Secretary of State. I would like just to say that uh, I'm delighted to be here today have been received by you. It's a pleasure and an honor, an honor, not only on my own capacity, but on the capacity of the African Union Commission and the whole continent. As you have said, we, have, uh, we are now confronted with so many problems in the continent, and we need to exchange views with the rest of our partners. And uh, in this specific context, it is good to be here today with you and to exchange views on the situation in Libya as well. At the same time, as you know, we have uh, started to strengthen our cooperation, multilateral cooperation with the USA. And this is our second visit to that side. And uh, we can see the difference. We started last year. The difference is there in terms of uh, quality of our exchange, also the quantity of the, the partners with whom we have interacted. Thank you very much for your kind invitation and thank you for receiving us. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Again, welcome. Thank you. thank you all very much. Oh, please. <laughs> Let me tell you, the more I hear this guy talk, the more I see why NATO's bitch slapping AU all across Africa because, my God, can we get somebody that can work the microphone, you know, that can put some flair into what they're talking about? No pun intended for Rick Flair. But, my God, this guy is finally one of the elders, man, from, like, back in the day, like, around the drum. Good Lord almighty. Can we hear some passion? Now, let's get a little, let's go a little backwards here in reference to, uh, well, the AU did try a, a peace mission. So let, let me let you hear how that turned out, and then we'll come back to our commercial break here, if you don't mind. Fighting continues across Libya, illustrating the failure of the African Union's attempt to get both sides to agree to a ceasefire. Libyan rebels said the increasingly bloody siege of the city of Misrata by pro-Gaddafi troops made talk of a halt in the fighting meaningless. A spokesperson spelled out their objections. 
As we understood from the African delegation, the proposal had been submitted on March the 10th in Addis Ababa, but did not include the resignation of Gaddafi and his regime. On the other hand, it did include some sort of reforms in Gaddafi's regime, which the Libyan people completely reject. But sensing the West has little appetite for a long drawn-out affair, Gaddafi's son said his side was willing to cooperate within limits. If the West wants democracy, elections and things, this is the program that we announced a long time ago out of choice. We're all agreed on this point, but the West must help us provide the right climate. Meanwhile, pro-Gaddafi forces who are surrounding Misrata are making conditions in the city unbearable for civilians. The Red Cross says it hopes to send in a team to help those trapped by the fighting, but a government minister warned that any aid operation involving foreign troops would be seen as a declaration of war. Let's take a little break here, then we'll come back. Let's go back to some uh, music from DRC, if you don't mind. Reference to uh, where is God when it comes to Congo? Are you there? Yes, he is there. Shout out to the science out there. Mama, 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 
the AUs have been marginalized in a conflict that's taking place in the African continent. And the Sikhs are cozy, and the Italians and the British and the, the Americans are taking a backstage or a back uh, backup role to this whole onslaught. But to just see, to act as though Libya is not even a country, that they don't have any kind of rights, and that they're not part of a coalition. I mean, could you imagine the Cameroonians and the Algerians and, and the Angolans say we're going to enforce a no-fly zone in Paris? Sarkozy will laugh and say who those who 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 they think they are. Just picture that. I mean, here we are, folks are supporting the movement of people in Benghazi. McCain's out there meeting these people. No one knows who they really are. There's been speculation and, and uh, uh, assertions that there's uh, extremists as part of those groups. I mean, seriously. And yet people are talking about, oh, the people in Benghazi can open an office in the U.S. And you know, Qatar is uh, middle-manning middle a $100 million oil, uh, sale of oil. Yet in this whole thing, the AU, nothing has even heard of those guys. And people want, if maybe they're in collusion with Gaddafi, because, you know, Gaddafi, regardless of some of the things he's done when it comes to Chad and some other places, has really done a lot for the continent. John Wesley Clark has made some interesting points when it comes to Libya. And this interview actually was in the newsroom where he was asked about is the AU in collusion with Gaddafi. Now to Libya, we're hearing that phrase again, ceasefire. African Union mediators say Muammar Gaddafi is on board with their plan and that he will let peacekeepers come in to monitor the agreement. Still, there is no mention of Gaddafi stepping down. General Wesley Clark joins me now to explain exactly what this means, if anything. Welcome, General. Thank you, Carol. Well, I think what it means is that this is part of a three-pronged three strategy that Muammar Gaddafi is unfolding. First, to try to destroy the rebels by military force or by subversion and bribes and intimidation. Secondly, to stall through a peace process. And third, to build up his strength through bringing in more mercenaries and outside support. So, so the African Union is offering this um, supposed deal. Is, are they in, like, collusion with Muammar Gaddafi then? Well, they're not exactly in collusion, but he has given a lot of support and assistance to them. Of course, everyone wants to see the fighting stopped, and Muammar Gaddafi wants to see the fighting stopped. He doesn't want to leave, and so he's brought this group in. He's invited them. I'm sure there were discussions before they came in about what generally they would offer, and they have not called it for his departure from the country. The, the rebels have said he must depart from the country. And his sons, by the way. Uh, Nick Robertson has reported airstrikes are simply sort of enforcing a, a, a status quo. And even if NATO decides to put boots on the ground, it might be too late for that. So what are we looking at here, General? Well, I think what you're looking at is a prolonged policy struggle here. And as, the, uh, as NATO comes to terms with how badly does it want Gaddafi out, and then what is it willing to do to do that? So there are already some, uh, some outsiders in with the rebels in Benghazi. Apparently they're not there with the forces calling in airstrikes yet. They're not actually doing the training. They may be assisting in some unpacking and delivery of weapons. So all of these steps have to be decided, and then um, the alliance or the coalition would have to have a countervailing strategy to isolate Gaddafi, prevent the arrival of mercenaries and outside support, to use diplomacy to erode his will and to strengthen the rebels so they cause 
the clock to work against him. Of course, what Gaddafi's playing with is he's playing with the extremely uh, overpowering capabilities of the United States of America and NATO in general. You've got the French president, right. the British prime minister, and, the, uh, and, and the President Obama saying he's got to leave. So his days are numbered. It's a question of how to bring it to closure. Right, and, and how long that's going to take. General Wesley Clark, right. thanks for joining us this morning. Again, no mention of the African Union when it comes to this whole military uh, strategy here. And another question that's coming that's come up is NATO when it comes to what are they exactly what exactly are they attacking in Libya? Because some people are saying they're attacking military camps. Some people are saying they're just bombing you know uh, weapons factories. But another thing that's coming out is are they trying to assassinate Gaddafi himself? And this was addressed to NATO at a conference some time ago. The commander of NATO forces in Libya has denied the attack on a building inside Muammar Gaddafi's Bab al-Azizia compound was an attempt on the leader's life. The Libyan government accused NATO of targeting Gaddafi. With regards to the engagement uh, that we conducted in Tripoli, I continue to stay focused not on individual. This is not about individuals. This is not about regime change. This is about bringing an end to violence against the population by engaging troops that are directly bringing harm to the population. The head of NATO operations accused Libyan forces of using civilians as human shields and that violence against the Libyan people is widespread. More than a month of NATO air attacks have failed to tip the balance in a conflict that is being described as a bloody stalemate. Yeah. It is becoming a stalemate. That's becoming very clear. And one thing that has come up on a side note reference to this whole Libyan situation, I don't want to say a situation to minimize it or anything like that, like in buys of lies, but the thing is, if the people are really against Gaddafi, everybody would have rose up in Libya because if there's an opportunity to do it, this is now. So to say that the rebels in Benghazi are the legitimate spokespeople for uh, the Libyan people, I think maybe I think President Obama made the right statement when he said they are one of the legitimate voices for the people of Libya, but they're not the voice of legitimate. They're not the legitimate voice for all Libyans, because you can best believe the Benghazians or whatever you want to call it for that live in there, uh, the people that inhabitate that city. I really like to see him try to take Cersei, Gaddafi's stronghold, without a fight. I just again, who are these rebels? Who are they? And again, let's go back to this. You know, people are saying NATO. I thought it was because, I thought initially it was about protecting the civilians. So if Benghazi is not under siege, and Gaddafi is trying to resolve the situation in Misrata, and I believe he's fighting some people in the mountains, why are they still bombing Libya and Tripoli? And that's an argument the African Union should be making. But yet each time we hear the discussion about the Northern Territories, it's always the Arab League, it's always the EU, it's always NATO and the American allies and the international forces. But one voice that did question exactly what NATO is doing there is specifically are they trying to assassinate President Gaddafi because you know some of the African Union leaders are thinking about this because they're wondering, well, if they're going to try to get rid of Gaddafi, if I'm Robert Mugabe, how are they going to try to get rid of me? Or if I'm Paul Kagame, how do I know they won't turn on me once the Congolese decide, you know what, we're just going to resolve this situation, the Great Lakes, on our own and just uh, invade Rwanda? I mean, you can best believe a lot of people are watching what's going on um, a lot of leaders are watching what's going on. People may laugh at that, that last thing I made. But you have to keep in mind that, remember a couple of days ago, that the British announced that 
Rwanda has sent some assassins to the UK to assassinate some people in the di- Rwandans in the diaspora. So some of the things may sound like lunacy, but it's often based in fact. So let's hear what the Russians had to say, especially Foreign Minister Putin, because you know. You'll say what he has to say. No Who what. gave coalition forces in Libya the right to eliminate Gaddafi? Well, that's the question Vladimir Putin's been asking during an official visit to Denmark. The Russian Premier also said NATO's effectively joined one of the warring sides in the conflict, and more responsible action should be taken instead. Lottie's Daniel Bushel joins us now, live for this in Brussels. Uh, Daniel, so um, the Russian Prime Minister has effectively lashed out on the operation there in Libya. Yes, he's made a speech in Denmark and he was very angry. He says that uh, Gaddafi is not the best person in the world. Sure, he's made uh, many mistakes, done many bad things, but that does not give the coalition the right to bomb indiscriminately. His words were that they are bombing Gaddafi's palaces in Tripoli every night. Uh, now, a coalition said that their plan was not to get rid of Gaddafi. So his question was, uh, Mr. Putin's question was, why are the coalition forces obviously making this effort to go after Colonel Gaddafi himself? Now, we also heard that uh, the experts here in Brussels have confirmed that there's, there is bombing going on by the coalition forces, uh, which is not being covered by the media uh, here in the European Union. Ms. Putin added that oil was uh, a key interest for the Western powers, for the European powers who have gone into Libya, that they want to get rid of Gaddafi and install people who are more favourable to the European Union so that European companies can control the oil reserves. Let's have a listen to exactly what Ms. Putin had to say. The coalition said destroying Gaddafi was not their goal. Then why bomb his palaces? Now some officials have claimed that eliminating him was in fact their goal. Who gave them that right? Did he have a fair trial? Returning to the no-fly zone, the bombings are destroying the country's entire infrastructure. When the so-called civilized world uses all its military power against a small country, destroying what's been created by generations, I don't know if that's good. Mr. Putin said that they have to give the Libyan people time to sort out their own problems and there's really double standards here, here he added. There are several other parts of the region in the Middle East and North Africa which is facing pretty much civil war situations but which the West is either ignoring or not really paying the same amount of attention to. Well, Daniel, there have been uh, reports about an EU plan to send army convoys to assist humanitarian aid there in Libya. Of course, there'll be those who say, well, this is really the start of uh, a military ground operation, Uh, something, of course, that uh, allies were adamant wouldn't happen. Yeah, absolutely. I heard these uh, rumours for the first time a few weeks ago uh, that the EU plans to send up to a thousand troops uh, under the guise of so-called humanitarian aid. Russia fears that this will be used uh, to plan an invasion and to carry out an invasion of Libya on the pretext of supporting uh, humanitarian aid to the Libyan people. The draft plan is called U for Libya. It's supported uh, by the 27 member states of the European Union, uh, prepared by them, and it provides for ground troops, in fact, to be deployed by the Western Coalition. Uh, In the port city of Misrata, which is currently under siege by forces uh, loyal to Muammar Gaddafi, here in Brussels, Michael Mann, the chief spokesman to the European Union High Representative, Catherine Ashton, said that they would only send up to a thousand troops and the troops would only be used 
uh, if they came under attack, otherwise they would only defend aid. Now Russia has said that it will only support another UN resolution if it explicitly says that it will not uh, uh, it will not continue the violence. That if it ends the violence and starts negotiations, then that is the only condition under which they would support that. Now I've been speaking to military analysts here in Brussels, and they confirm that uh, ground troops are already in operation in Libya. This is not being covered by the media uh, in the European Union, but uh, troops are already in operation and they are pushing forward in Libya with Colonel Gaddafi as the target. Daniel, thanks very much indeed for that. That's uh, Daniel Bushell live there in Brussels. Very interesting that he's saying that there already are troops in Libya, and if you recall some time ago uh, in Misrata, the Gaddafi government agreed to allow troops to I cannot remember the details, to either escort the supplies to their destination to avoid attack by possible rebels to make it seem like it's the Gaddafi government um, enforcing the violence. Or, I believe, I'll just leave it there, but it was along, along those lines, that schematic. So, and also, if you recall, a couple of days ago, France is going to send, I believe it's France, is sending Apache helicopters, attack helicopters to attack uh, more specific targets in Tripoli. So, of course, you know, they fly lower, makes them a more juicier target. Yet, conversely, you heard the EU, the gentleman was talking about the EU, the EU, the EU, no AU, that they're making decisions with regardless, without any, any consultation with the AU. So you have to wonder what exactly is going on because the mandate here is to protect civilians, but it looks like it's an escalation of war. To be honest, for those that study history, this is looking a lot like Vietnam. It may people may shake their heads or what have you, but it's looking a lot like Vietnam in reference to Hanoi and Saigon and you know the RV in the north and the NVAs and the uh, the people in the south. It's just really starting to it looks like a, uh, a a civil war, and I think Russia well, it's already been a civil war, but it looks like it's escalating to involve international partners. And even though Russia recently has said they're trying to negotiate an exit for Gaddafi to leave the country, how can you negotiate for his son? Even Gaddafi, it's his country. He's from there. How can you also initiate any peace agreement, peace agreement that involves the sons having to leave Libya? It's their country. Why should they have to leave? And it's one thing that's always stood in my mind a while uh, for some time is how one of the sons, I think the younger one, that Saeed, was working uh, with an organization out here in Los Angeles. And when the uprising broke out, he went home, just like Parker Gunn went back to Rwanda when they invaded the RPF, the RPA at that time invaded. It was the RPF invaded Rwanda. He went back there and took up arms against the people that wanted to topple the government and um, overthrow the government. Well, topple and overthrow the same thing. I apologize. And it was ironic when his, the people he had just he was working with in California saw the picture of him on a gun and trying to push the crowd. They said they were disappointed in his actions and they were disturbed by the vision and the vision of him doing that. But the question is, it's his country. Every American person I know in this country, if the United States came under attack, would get the, a gun. If they couldn't find a gun, they'd get a kitchen knife, spoon, fork, stick, broom, whatever, to defend the country. The Canadians, any people would do that if they feel their country's under siege. So to make it seem like it's a foreign concept that people that are Libya, in Libya actually want to defend their country, instead they want to say Gaddafi loyalists. But these people are loyal to Libya. Because, again, if there was an opportunity to overthrow Kagami, um, right, excuse me, Gaddafi, this is the time to do it. But the question always revolves again. NATO says they're there to protect civilians. So the question was asked some time ago, well, who's killing civilians in Libya? 
Let's give a Tripoli's renewed calls for international experts to visit the country to assess the scale of violence against civilians. The Libyan government insists the claims of the opposition that over 10,000 have died since the beginning of the clashes is exaggerated. Sukhat Chandan's just returned from Libya. He was part of the uh, first international group to be invited to examine the civilian losses in the conflict. He's on the line from London now to talk about what he saw there. Thank you for coming on to RT. What impressions and evidence did you bring back? With you then? I think one of the most important things to say on our delegation is that um, the, the basis for 1973, the UN resolution, was that the claim was that Gaddafi had bombed from the air three particular districts in Tripoli Sabjuma, Fajlun, and Tajura. We visited these places, there was no indication whatsoever of any aerial bombardment. So it, go, it, just, it just goes to show that if there's a claim, this has to be actually corroborated properly, and that hasn't been done. And what we've, what we've had is a situation where NATO has gone to war against a sovereign nation on the base of an allegation, which in terms of our findings was just baseless. Okay, right. I'm taking what you say there, but of course you were invited across by the, uh, G the Gaddafi regime, the uh, Libyan government. It begs the question, were you shown the whole picture? Did you see really everything that was going on? Are you absolutely convinced that you did? Well, you know, you're obviously right to, um, to, 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 to say that. But the point is that there has been no international investigative teams so far to investigate the NATO bombings as well. And so we were part of that mission. And so, I mean, we've just returned, I've just literally returned from the airport. I've come straight into the studio here in London. And the British response to our delegation is that our head delegate is currently in Heathrow Police Custody Suite being questioned. Being questioned this why? Is the response about what? Of the British authorities. What's, a, what's he being well, questioned about? Can you tell us? Well, I don't know. I, I, returned, I, I returned with him. Uh, to, to, to the airport, we passed passport control and he was taken uh, straight away by, by the police and now me and my colleagues are trying to find out he's incommunicado. Okay. We, we, we assume he's in Heathrow custody suite. So this is, this, okay. is the, this is the British response to a peace initiative. We, we, we went there to meet the uh, Archbishop of Libya, the, the Vatican's uh, uh, um, uh, envoy there. And it's, it's these type of meetings that were that taking just... place. And, can, can, can you just tell our viewers who went across with you, who was also part of your group? What sort of people went across? It was a, it was a mixture of professionals, um, doctors, uh, independent journalists. Um, so it was, it, was, it was a cross-section of people, English, people from different backgrounds, but all of us were, were, were actually British nationals. Okay. Um, your group also reports that you have been able to corroborate that there were civilian fatalities because of NATO bombings. Now, again, crucially important here, tell us more about that. How have you been able to corroborate that? Well, you know, speaking to uh, these British journalists in Tripoli was very interesting. They've been there for over two months. They've only been able to corroborate one civilian casualty um, from the NATO uh, bombing. We, in the matter of one morning, managed to go to hospitals, see death certificates, see hospital records, visited families, saw, saw death certificates in their possession, had testimonials from families, and we corroborated the possibility of seven civilian deaths within, that, within a matter of three hours. So really, if people are very serious about understanding what the situation is going on in Libya, they need to go there. Professional teams need to be sent. And this, this has been called for by the Gaddafi regime and by uh, different countries of the global south. There is an opinion indeed, uh, you know, it, it, it's uh, been reported as well by our, our correspondent there, Paul Eslia, that, you know, maybe on the ground, G Gaddafi's been using bodies of civilians killed in his offensive to 
prove damage made by the coalition attacks, that basically people were, were not killed by NATO. You know, how can you prove it, though? Well, this is, this is, this is obviously the challenge. You know, this, this, this aggression has to stop. There needs to be international mediation. There needs to be immediate ceasefire. There needs to be reconciliation. And fundamentally, NATO has to stop its, 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 its aggression. I mean, the British journalists were very interesting. They accused us of being naive in Tripoli. Well, they said they had free access to Benghazi. Why didn't the British journalists investigate the mass lynchings of dark, black-skinned Libyans all across eastern, eastern Libya? You know, what is wrong with these journalists? They can go to YouTube. They can see literally black people being chopped up alive, literally on YouTube, in Benghazi and in the rebel-held areas. Why haven't the British journalists investigated this? And just to clarify, chopped up by whom? By the rebels, by the pro-NATO Contras, as I call them. Okay, well, uh, Sukhet Chandran from the uh, British Civilians for Peace in Libya, thank you for being on the programme and telling us what you saw. Whoa. Wow. Let's take a commercial break.
house music there for you folks out there. Let's get on with our groove. Let's wrap it up here. We have about 30 minutes left. Yes, I am alone today. I have no one working the board. So, hey, it was very interesting some of the statements that John made in our previous, in our uh, segment before the musical break there about the uh, black-skinned people getting hacked up in Benghazi. I've been hearing reports about that. I've actually seen some footage. It can never be corroborated, but maybe it's something for another show down the road. Who knows? So, folks, I was going to say, I'm going to say free people of the world. But anyway, we're down to our last 30 minutes. If NATO is bringing the, apparently is bringing relief or freedom or democracy or protecting civilians, can the AU bring relief to Libya? Because NATO is just slapping them around like they they, they don't even matter. So let's give a little segment here. It's a little bit long. It was on Al Jazeera some time ago with Riz Khan. It's a little over 20 minutes, but we'll see if we can do as much as possible and then leave off into our closing moments here. Hope you guys are doing well. Let's do our thing here. Can AU bring relief to Libya? Hello and welcome. How much clout does the African Union really have, and why has it struggled to bring resolution to the conflict in Libya? Although Muammar Gaddafi accepted the AU's roadmap for peace, many Libyans and much of the international community remain skeptical. The AU's proposal called for an immediate ceasefire, channels for humanitarian aid, the protection of foreign nationals, and for dialogue between rebels and the government. However, it made no mention of any requirement for Colonel Gaddafi to withdraw his troops, which the opposition forces have consistently demanded. Libyan rebels and their supporters rejected the draft, insisting that there can be no peace until Colonel Gaddafi and his family relinquish power. NATO says any ceasefire in Libya must be credible and verifiable. So today we ask how far are the opposing sides in Libya from reaching common ground and who can play the part of a credible mediator? Remember, you can join in the conversation with your questions and comments. You can send an SMS or an email, and we'll also take your phone calls on the show. Joining me from London is Jason Pack, a scholar of St. Anthony's College at Oxford University, who specializes in Libya. He's worked in both Tripoli and Washington on strengthening the U.S.-Libya relationship. From the U.S. state of New Hampshire, we have Dirk van der Waller, an associate professor of government at Dartmouth College. In 1986, he lived in Libya for 14 months, the only Western scholar there at the time. He's the author of Libya since 1969, Gaddafi's Revolution Revisited, which provides a complete evaluation of Libya since the Gaddafi coup in 1969. Gentlemen, I welcome you both to the show. Thank you. It's, 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 it's a great honor, Riz. Well, Jason, it's good to have you with us as well, sir, and I'm going to start with you and, and, and ask you about this, this simple question you get asked regularly when, you, when you're out and about at parties or anywhere. People ask you, who are the Libyan rebels? How do you respond? Well, Riz, I guess there's the short answer and the long answer. The short answer is, who are the Libyan rebels? They're the only game in town. The long answer is, when you hear American politicians like Secretary Clinton or Robert Gates, or particularly some Republican congressmen say, we don't know who the Libyan rebels are. I'm not sure we should be supporting them. That's, in fact, a myth. Um, we do know who the Libyan rebels are. There are two discrete groups. There are the fighters, and there's the political leadership. The political leadership is people who've been on the international scene as te reformist technocrats for the Qaddafi regime, or human rights lawyers, or prominent other Libyans of, of Eastern Cyrenaic in origin, and we have a good idea, in fact, what their political program even is. What we don't know is how they'll be able to implement that political program, and we don't know 
how they will fare in bringing in new actors if and when the Qaddafi regime should fall. So that's what we don't know about the Libyan rebels. Right. It's not that we don't know who they are. Well, we, we know who they are, but do they have enough credibility, in your opinion, in the international, uh, the eyes of the international community, in order to be able to be considered credible and legitimate uh, parties with whom to negotiate? Well, then, it's important to understand the distinction between the fighters and the political leadership here. The fighters, you know, the guys in the pickup trucks going back and forth on the coastal road, they don't necessarily, we don't have much credibility, we don't know who they are. But we really do know who, um, you know, the Prime Minister Jalil or Mahmoud Jibril, the uh, de facto foreign minister, or Ali Isawi. We know exactly who they are, and they have a lot of legitimacy, and I think they're going to be great interlocutors as time goes forward. Professor Dirk van der it's good to have you with us as well, sir. And I, and I want to just kick off with you and ask, basically, uh, you know, these attempts to have a ceasefire seem to be going nowhere. D does the blame lie squarely on the shoulders of Muammar Gaddafi? Uh, no, I think what we're starting to see at this point is really the very beginning um, of a negotiating process that um, has started under the auspices of the African Union, but that will undoubtedly go on for a very long time. Uh, to go back to the question you just answered about the opposition, um, I think Washington knows a lot more than it lets on about the opposition, but particularly in light of the process, the, the kind of negotiations that have just started, um, Washington would like to get, I think, a very clear idea um, of what programmatically these rebels uh, stand for. And so, yes, we know there are some former national uh, leaders, some former national figures, uh, but we also, uh, there is, a, a, I would think, a certain amount we still don't know. Uh, and so, for example, even though the National Council um, has come up with about 12 names of an alleged council that comprises itself of 31 people, and there is still some doubt on who the rest of these people are, and more importantly, whether or not they truly um, can represent uh, Tripolitania mm -hmm. and Cyrenaica together, as opposed to purely being an Eastern force. And therefore, I think the negotiating process is only at the beginning. Washington is trying to figure out uh, what it needs to know before it can really engage upon the process. Right. And the African Union uh, gambit will only be the beginning of a long process. I'll get on to that in just a, a moment, but Professor, let me ask you about the, the request by the Transitional National Council and the, you know, the, 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 the rebel representatives, if you like, to get more weapons, to get armaments, and they've largely been approaching countries with whom they feel they have support, for example, um, France, Italy, Qatar. They're looking for uh, armament. Is, how tricky is that a situation for the international community in, in meeting that request? I think it's an extremely tricky situation, uh, in part because um, if indeed and there is a kind of an apocalyptic scenario that Libya uh, may either be split up or that uh, the rebels could um, occupy, go westward and eventually occupy uh, Tripolitania, uh, then I think one of the big dangers is that uh, the weapons are in the hands of uh, people, as Washington says, that we know relatively little about, uh, but also that there may be a substantial amount of leakage of those weapons in a post-Gaddafi uh, system. Uh, and then the big question, of course, is where do those weapons end up, or do those weapons get used for settling scores among Libyans? Um, so I think the whole issue of weapons, uh, particularly for the United States, is a very tricky one and a very sensitive one mm -hmm. um, at this particular point in time. Now, Jason Pack, interestingly enough, there are, there are reports also that, that the, uh, the opposition rebels are more interested in getting credibility and, and more interested in getting some kind of uh, greater legitimacy throughout the international community uh, as opposed to simply just getting weapons. And I wonder to what degree that should be a priority for them. 
I'm going to address that in a sec, Riz. I want to amplify uh, Professor Van Duel's point, which is that although we know who the rebels are, we have no idea how they would fare in expanding their political institutions to include the west of the country were Qaddafi to fall. Right now, they represent exclusively a broad church of, of Eastern Cyrenaican interests, and that's a big question mark if they could ever become a truly national representative right. uh, grouping. Now to the question you said, I think that weapons are important, but I, I'm of the belief that this is primarily a political, diplomatic, and propaganda struggle. And although it's important that the rebels don't collapse militarily and the no-fly zone um, implemented from March 19th onward has succeeded in making sure that they don't collapse militarily, in this propaganda, diplomatic, political struggle, international recognition and things like that Italy and Qatar have joined France in recognizing the Transitional National Council is very relevant because of the various economic and, and political things they can do to strengthen the appeal of, of the rebels, both to their own controlled areas and then projecting diplomatic power into the west of the country. Well, Professor, of course, there is the issue of France and Britain being critical of NATO for not being tough enough with, uh, with the bombings and uh, resistance to Muammar Gaddafi's forces. And I wonder, the U.S. seems to also have taken more of a backseat. To what degree we're seeing, I wonder to what degree we're seeing more of a rift between the, the Allies and how to move forward. Well, I think, um, in, in a sense, what we have arrived at, I think, in Libya at this particular point in time, uh, truly is a stalemate. Um, and so there is a, a kind of a schizophrenic quality uh, between, on the one hand, what the UN resolution allows um, and what uh, leaders uh, in the West are saying, uh, effectively arguing for regime change. And so we've, we're at a stalemate, and unfortunately, um, I think the international coalition has really now become the arbiter um, of whether or not Libya slips into a civil war. By taking action one way, it can promote a solution. By taking action another way, it can effectively make sure that the country uh, splits into half. So I think Washington, at this particular point in time, um, is very worried about what kind of scenario um, is staring us in the face, and hence also why it wants to know a lot more and wants to make sure um, that these uh, rebels can consolidate their power uh, perhaps make their agenda clearer to the West before they want to move ahead. So I see this as a temporary stalemate, uh, and the coalition will need to make up its mind whether or not it wants to move forward more forcefully, uh, but that, of course, would mean that perhaps the eastern rebels would be able to take over Tripolitania, and that raises a number of questions uh, from a historical point of view um, that I think the United States is also very uneasy about. Uh, Jason Pack, let me ask about the. I, the I want to jump in here. Yeah, go ahead. I also want to ask you about the African Union's efforts because that seemed to go nowhere. They they didn't allow for Muammar Gaddafi stepping down. Was that short-sighted? I'll treat that secondly. Sure. Um, well, I, I agree with I I agree with Professor Vandevali that, in fact, the there's great concerns in Washington about what's going on on the ground. But I believe the military situation has stabilized, and it's not a stalemate because. If you look at the political situation, it can be that the Qaddafi regime is crumbling from within, and you need to consider um, you know, the Musakusa defection and the things that are happening today about that. We'll probably come back to that, so I'll treat the African Union issue right now. I would say that there are two ways to analyze this. Either it was a botched but serious attempt at mediation, or in fact just a propaganda tool that Qaddafi got 
um, you know, cronies of his in, in the African Union, an organization which has frequently looked to him to pay their entry fees and things like this, to help him out by making him look like he was willing to accept a peace plan that he knew the rebels wouldn't be able to accept because it doesn't have to do with him stepping down. So by him accepting a peace plan and them not accepting it, he gained propaganda points in this, in this political propaganda war. And it's very much like the ceasefire he declared after the no-fly zone on March 18th. It, it, it caught the attention for one media cycle, and then, of course, there was fighting on, uh, on just as there had always been. There was no plan for an actual ceasefire. Professor, I want to put a couple of email questions to you. I'll read them about back to back. They're on a similar topic here uh, on the issue of the African Union. And uh, the first one's from the USA, from Virginia. And this comes in from a viewer by the name of Michelangelo, who wrote in saying, Gaddafi's connections within the African Union give him too much power. He, has al he already expressed his refusal to pull out of occupied towns and step down. What do the rebels stand to gain from negotiations? The second one, which comes in from Nigeria, from uh, Victor Akem in Lagos, uh, says, the African Union doesn't have the credentials to intervene. African heads of state still view Gaddafi as a senior leader. NATO should not listen to critics insisting on Gaddafi's inclusions, uh, inclusion in the negotiations. I'd like to get your view on this. What do the rebels get out of the, uh, the negotiation perspective? And, and then also the, the view on uh, whether or not NATO should listen to Gaddafi here. Yeah. Well, I, I think uh, to a large extent uh, the, there is something, I think, to the view that, you know, this is an opening gambit and, and a long struggle. Uh, and that certainly uh, we should remember um, that uh, Colonel Gaddafi has always had very friendly relations uh, with the South African government, with Nelson Mandela in particular. Um, and so I think South Africa, I think we should give credit where it is due. I think South Africa was probably genuinely interested uh, through the African Union in reaching about a conclusion uh, in, in Libya. Now, of course, um, it is true that this gives, in a sense, Gaddafi a leg up, so to speak, because um, he has now officially accepted it, and of course, knowing perfectly well um, that the rebels could not accept this, because one of the rebels, one of the conditions um, exactly. for the rebels is um, that he will be removed. Right. Um, so, in effect, uh, again, uh, we're, we're in a, at the beginning, I think, of a long diplomatic process where there is, a, I would call it, a political stalemate at this particular point in time. Uh, but that doesn't mean, of course, um, that there will not be many other initiatives coming down the pike, perhaps uh, not only from the African Union, perhaps also from the Arab League, perhaps from the European. So this is uh, the beginning of a long process. Yeah. Now, in terms of Can NATO forces, uh, sure, go ahead. I want to jump in here on, on that point. The South African resonance and is very important because in the UN sanctions period from 1992 to 99 when Libya was virtually isolated, the hook that Qaddafi used to exit his isolation was an Africa strategy. And his relations with Mandela, as, as Professor Van der Waal has mentioned, were a, a key part in that. So if you were going to analyze this gambit as having the two levels, the propaganda level I spoke about earlier, and then a, a serious level, he knows that if he can have Africa, he can exit a sanction scenario. And I think he also knows that he can't survive under international sanctions because right what it caused to happen from 1992 to 1999 inside Libya was disastrous for the oil infrastructure mm -hmm. and for the general economy of, of the country. Um, so he would love to make a political process to jump outside of, of, of those sanctions, and Africa is the way for him. Okay, well, let me get two... Uh, we've got a couple of callers on the line. Let's uh, get Naveed on the line from the United Arab Emirates. Naveed, thank you for your patience. Go ahead. That's right. I just wanted to uh, say about the first question uh, Liz asked, you asked uh, 
about uh, whether the whether Washington knows who it's dealing with. Uh, it seems like a bit of deja vu here uh, about what happened to uh, in Afghanistan when uh, the rebels, when the fighters mujahideen were supported by America, and uh, they ended up turning uh, against them like a Frankenstein uh, scenario here. So I just wonder that whether that is why. Uh, America is, is hesitant about uh, going right. all for it. I'll get both perspectives. Uh, I'll start with the professor and then Jason, I'll come to, Jason let me come to you in just a second. The professor, yeah. I saw you nodding and Jason was shaking his head. Sure. Well, I, I mean, absolutely. I, I think uh, the United States, I think, um, has very wisely stood back in a sense and looked at uh, what is happening uh, in Libya. It is not sure exactly what the opposition represents, although, again, I think it, it knows more than it lets on. But it is trying, I think, the, the rebels to come up with a program that it can then more forcefully support, at least then knowing what exactly that opposition um, stands for. Uh, it certainly wants to avoid what happened in Afghanistan. Uh, and the only way to do that, frankly, is to push the rebels, to push the opposition, uh, to come up with uh, programmatic clarity so that at that point the United States can really step in uh, and say this is what we can support. The one issue that is left unresolved and why I think also Washington um, is very reluctant um, is that uh, whatever happens, it needs to resolve the problem of Tripolitania, the western province in Libya, and how people, people that may have supported Gaddafi until the very end, how those people will become incorporated into a new Libya, a Libya hopefully that won't split apart. So that I think is why from a tactical point of view, Washington is still reluctant to commit itself fully at this point. Jason, do you see it differently? Well, Professor Van der Waal raises all crucially important points, but I would put the emphasis just slightly differently, that in Afghanistan in the 1980s, we knew we were supporting Salafi Islamists. Just during the Cold War, we had supported Salafi Islamists against the Soviet Union. Um, so that came back and bit us, but we knew who we were supporting. And now in Libya, we know the rebel political leadership. It may, in fact, not be wise to go too far with them right now. And I'm very happy that the United States has not recognized yet the Transitional National Council. It's good for America to hold back. This isn't America's show. America can be a supporting actor, not a driving force here. But that isn't to say that we know that the top leadership of the TNC are secularist reformers, most of whom participated in the reform efforts during the detente period between the West and Libya and were dissatisfied with the, the slow speed and the back, you know, the back movement on, on pro-market and, and pro-Western reforms. And we know that they're going to adopt pro-business, secular, pro-human rights things. We just don't know if they can command the political will outside of Cyrenaica to implement them. So right. that goes back to the key point that Professor Van der Waal has, has raised, which is that what we're seeing now is a fairly Cyrenaican movement, and it may not get traction in the rest of the country, right. especially with the former loyalists of the Qaddafi regime. It's, yeah. a, it's a huge unknown. Well, we've got Alexander on the line from uh, Virginia. Thanks for your patience as well. Go ahead. Sure. Uh, I appreciate the time. Uh, right. This question goes to uh, basically all three of you. I mean, my father served in the Also, and people, our time is coming to an end. So on that note, I want to say, hey, thanks for tuning in for today. I hope you got some good information. 
I wanted to keep it as balanced as possible, but you know, I have to put my input in there somewhere. So, folks, slide your case to the bingo, live and direct. We're going to take this off the air. Tune in next time. I am gone. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.